Verse 11 says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. God is the apple of the righteous man's eyes. He wants to be with God and enjoy him. He wants to sing for joy without ever having to stop. The righteous man wants to freely worship God without any fear that that would ever stop or come to an end. He wants to exult in his name and he wants to witness and share with others how awesome that name is. This is what makes the righteous man tick. Lots of things make us happy, right? And we dedicate a lot of our time and talent and treasure to those things. We want to enjoy them. We want to spread their fame so that other people would enjoy them with us. So I ask you, what do you ultimately crave? What do you think about when it's late at night? What are you singing about in your car? What is that thing you can't wait to talk to your friends about in the morning? Verse 7 also says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. What excites the righteous is being near God. The righteous want to be with him. It's their favorite place. You can track this through all of salvation history. Think about Old Testament worship. Think about New Testament worship. Think about New Heavens worship. For David in the Old Testament, the closest he could get to God was to go to the temple in Jerusalem, to which David said, better is one day in those courts than a thousand elsewhere. He envied the sparrows, which got to nest up in the temple. They were always with God, but David could only come in as a visitor and a guest. Today, in the New Testament, we're here in the New Covenant time, God the Holy Spirit communes with the righteous by dwelling within him. You and I are communing with God. If you are in Christ right now, we are near him and he is near us. And that the Holy Spirit, which dwells in us, he is a, um, a guarantee of the day when new heavens worship will come, when we will be with God. We will see him face to face and we will enjoy him. He will be the temple and we will be his people forever. That excites you. Is that something that your heart longs for? The righteous man loves God and wants to be with him. So what we see then is a progression of God drawing nearer and nearer to his people. And we The righteous are like a bride who is longing for her husband, waiting for him to come. The righteous man loves God. Subpoint B. The righteous man fears God. Verse 7 says the righteous fear God. But if you look at it, verse 11, it also says that he takes refuge in God. Is that, that, that's strange. Does that strike you as strange? That the thing that David fears is the same thing that David goes to find refuge from. Wouldn't you seek to get refuge away from the thing that you fear? God is terrifying. Imagine that there is a blazing fire just outside of those double doors. He is a consuming fire. He is holy and, and perfectly just and his wrath is fair, and it is comprehensive. It will destroy and burn up every hair of the sinner. It's terrifying. You can't protect yourself against God. You can't build a nuclear bunker and hide in it and get away from him. You can't gather up a team of lawyers that are good enough that are gonna get you out of the hot seat of God's judgment. You can't ignore it. This isn't like a game where you can close your eyes and just because you can't see God, he can't see you. No, his judgment is sure and it's terrifying. It's coming. You will die and you will face him. In that moment, where are you going to take refuge? Where are you going to find safety? Astonishingly, 
the amazingness of the Christian gospel is that God is the refuge. The righteous man trusts in Christ and God takes him and puts him in Christ and shuts him up into safety. If you will take refuge in Christ, you will be safe. We're gonna see that more in point three, but know this, that those who have feared God, who have, feared God have also found a refuge in God. What that means then is that the fear of God has taken on a different flavor. That sour taste of that fear of punishment has been sweetened. That's because a righteous man no longer fears God's punishment. We hear from 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, these words. There is no fear in love. The perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Instead of being afraid of punishment, those who are in Christ tremble in awe and reverence at his justice. Take the example of the 10th plague in Egypt. The Israelites were afraid of God and the angel of death. And they should have been, right? The angel of death is going to blow through and it's going to take the firstborn son of every, every family and they're scared. And that fear of God, that fear of punishment and judgment from God, it saved people's lives because when they feared him, they obeyed him. They followed his instruction. They took a blameless lamb and they slaughtered it and they took its blood and they covered the doorpost so that when the angel of death came through, they were safe. But while they were not afraid of punishment, do you not think their whole bodies shook? Did they not tremble in terror when the angel of death blew through Egypt? They heard the judgment of God through the weeping and the crying of the Egyptians. They saw his judgment when they saw those dead bodies. They were terrified and shaken to the core. They rejoiced in God that they had found refuge because they had feared him. And that fear was no longer a fear of punishment, but now they shook because of reverence and awe at his holy justice. There's a lot of frightening things in this world, aren't there? There's a lot of troubles. And so I ask you, what are you afraid of? It may be that you're afraid that you're never gonna get ahead in life. The money is tight. Your job feels like a dead end. There's another unexpected bill that's come up and you don't know how you're gonna get ahead. And it's scary. Or maybe you're afraid of this upcoming conversation with a family member or a loved one where you need to tell them this hard truth and it's scary. What if they don't like me? What if I'm burning bridges? It's terrifying. Maybe you're afraid of dying. We're all gonna die one day and you know you're supposed to look that fact into the, in the face and and own it and accept it and deal with it, but it's not been easy. You're just still scared, terrified. Plug in the thing that you're afraid of. Now I ask you, where are you going to find refuge? Where are you going to go to be safe from the thing that you fear? Many people try to find refuge in a lot of money. They wanna be popular or they want to exercise and make sure they're healthy so they can live a long life. These things are fine and good in their place, but these things aren't ultimately going to save you. They're not the refuge that you need. It's going to let you down. God has dealt with your biggest danger and the thing that you ought to be afraid of more than anything, and that is his wrath. Now, what that means is that the wrath of God is not against you. God is for you. Maybe I can paraphrase Paul in Romans chapter eight to help us see this switch and how being saved from the wrath of God has saved you from all things. Romans chapter eight to paraphrase. If God will not spare even his own son to give you refuge from his wrath, will he not also along with him give you everything you need? He gave you his own son. He has shown that he is willing to pay the most 
incredible, expensive price anyone could ever imagine. And if he's willing to do that, to provide you a refuge from his wrath, will he not also, along with him, give you everything you need? Yes. Yes, he will. God will take care of your financial needs. He will give you the strength to speak the truth and love with confidence and humility to your friend or loved one. He's going to raise you from the dead. And the truth is, is even if it still scares you, he's still going to do it if you trust in Christ. You don't have to be afraid. Even if things don't look up now, take comfort. One day, God will return and he will turn his wrath against every enemy that has ever been against you. And he will establish his home with you and you will dwell with him forever in perfect joy and peace from all troubles. No more bills, no more hard conversations, no more fear of death. So take comfort. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Look expectantly towards that day and let your heart be full of hope. So to summarize everything we've learned up to this point about the righteous man, he has feared the punishment of God which has led him to take refuge in God. And now he loves his name in a new and distinct way. We've also seen that he wants to live in peace, freely enjoying God and exulting in him without end. But we need to know, brothers and sisters, that while that is a destination, it is littered with potholes. Life comes at us hard and fast, full of troubles. So that's why the psalm also teaches us how to lament well. This is so crucial. We've been looking at it for two weeks already and now a third week. I wonder, do we pray laments well? We want to be able to lament well. So David, once again, is a model for how the righteous man prays. We're going to look at this subpoint in more detail. So subpoint C, the righteous man laments. Looking at verses one through three, let's read it together. together. <clears throat> Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. All prayers start in the heart, but not all prayers use words. Normally what happens is we think about a circumstance, we feel some sort of emotion on the inside, and then we formulate that into words to God. That's normally how you pray. That's good, that's right, keep doing that. For example, when a delicious meal is put before you, you feel happiness and you feel gratitude. And so you express a prayer of thanksgiving towards God. Or you're on your way to work and your car breaks down. You're stressed and you're anxious. And so then you pray a prayer petition to God to help you in your bond. The heart is the spring which spills over into prayer. That's the important thing to notice. But sometimes what happens is our troubles so overwhelm us, they so blow us away that we're pushed past being able to form our prayers into the right words. It just doesn't come about very easily. We've all been there. Sometimes we just groan. We just cry. And we can't really move past that. In the morning, we're looking ahead to another day full of anxieties, and it feels like there's a one-ton boulder on our chest, and our heart is just creaking and groaning under the pressure. Or after another day of trying to fight against our sins, we lose. And we're on our pillow at night and we're thinking, just torn up on the inside, crying. I cannot believe I gave into that sin again. <laughs> We've been there. But even when your words aren't coming out just right, you can only groan and cry. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that God hears you. He knows. Verse one says, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. God already knows what's in your heart before you say anything. David says he considers cries and groanings. I love that he uses the word considers. It's like God can 
feel it in the palm of his hand. He can weigh it. He can turn it from one side to the other. God knows exactly what you're saying, even when you don't. So during that process of crying and groaning, just know, be comforted. He considers your prayers. They're not lost on him. Not only does God understand our prayers, it's great comfort to us that when we lament, he cares about them. David points out that he's not praying just to anyone. He's praying to my king and my God. You aren't an alien in God's country. You're a citizen. We don't plead with any other rulers or any other powers whenever we need help. We go to our king. And kings, what they do is they listen to their citizens. They listen to them. They look after them. So what we need to see here then is that God is your king. God has voluntarily placed this kingly responsibility on himself. He has made us his people by covenant. He's created a relationship with you and he's grounded that relationship in a promise, a promise that cannot be broken. He has made an unbreakable bond, purchased and established by blood, promising that he will be your God and you will be his people. And if that's true, if he's our king and he's taken that responsibility on himself, then we should trust him, that when he hears us, he cares about what we're praying. He has shown that he's interested and attentive to our prayers. So have confidence that God listens to you when you lament and have confidence that your king is interested in what you're praying. Even if only you groan and cry, he's interested, he knows. In verse three, David prays and prepares his sacrifice in the morning. There's an urgency to the devotional life of the righteous man. David is keeping first things first, especially when times are tough. So when the sun comes up, David's eyes raise up. He bookends his prayer life in the morning and at night, and he fills it in in the center. And I just want to remind you, brothers and sisters, you need God every hour. So pray like you need God every hour. But notice as well that this isn't something that David just wakes up in the morning and gets done really fast and checks off of his list. This is something that he is arranging. He would have to collect the wood. He would have to set an altar. He would have to go slaughter an animal. He'd have to set it on the altar. He would have to ignite the offering. And not only that, after he goes through this entire long process of devotion and, and prayer to the Lord, it says that he watches. He is meditating as he prepares his prayer. His prayers are more like a well-lit fire that start in the heart, that continues burning all day long, than it is just a bolt of lightning that just flashes across our brain. And we pray like that pretty often, don't we? What we pray at our meals and our little rhymes is something quick that we can just kind of get off our list. Sometimes we pray like that in the morning. Sometimes we pray like that even when we're groaning and crying. But what David is showing us is no, it's intentional. It's meticulous. When you, when you wake up, start by devoting yourself to a day full of prayer. Even if you're groaning and crying, and you want to kind of bury some of that, I just want to encourage you, don't. Pray, meditate, watch after your prayers. Don't let the embers of your prayers go cold. So be meticulous. Take your petitions to God one log at a time, piece by piece, and let your continual meditation on God's character be like the twigs that you use to constantly kindle the fire and keep it going. Tend to your prayers and watch God's response. That's how the righteous man laments. Okay, to summarize everything we've learned in point one about the righteous man. The righteous man fears God and he takes refuge in him. He loves God and wants to be with him. And he laments well as he journeys through this fallen world towards the heavenly temple where his joy will be full and he will be with God forever. Point number two the unrighteous man. 
Subpoint A, the unrighteous man loves evil. We've said that the righteous man loves God, but the unrighteous man could not care less about the things of God. Looking at verse 5, we see that he is boastful and self-reliant. Verse 10 says he trusts his own counsel. This is important. This is something we need to know. Choosing is a form of loving. It's not just passive. It's not like choices just come upon you. It says something about what you prioritize and care about and love. You choose chocolate chips, chocolate chip cookies, over raisin cookies, number one, because they're definitely better, <clears throat> and number two, because you love chocolate chip cookies more than you love raisin cookies. Well, the unrighteous man, what he does is he chooses himself instead of God because he loves himself, not God. He doesn't think he needs to do things God's way. It just follows naturally. He takes counsel on himself. He's going to do things his way, not going to do things God's way. His way suits him just fine. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The unrighteous man says he doesn't need religion. He doesn't need Christianity with all its rules and regulations. Today, they choose Darwinian science, moral relativity. They cherry-pick their version of nihilism. The point is, is they'll do anything that it takes to not bow down to Jesus as their Lord. The effect of this, as verse 10 says, is an abundance of transgressions. A child who doesn't love his parents is not going to obey them. Well, in the same way, the unrighteous man does not love God, and so he's not going to do what God says. He lives his life like he's on a joyride. He jumps into the car, forgets the laws of the road, and he's going to follow his own code. He's still breaking the laws. It doesn't change the fact that what he's doing is wrong. But his master plan is brilliant. It's to ignore all of the flashing red and blue lights in his rearview mirror until he crashes, until it comes to an end. That's how the right unrighteous man lives his life. It seems fun for a time. It's a great kick. But that path is not going to end well. It's dangerous. It's the wrong way to live. But that's how the unrighteous man lives. Which leads to subpoint B. The unrighteous man does not fear God. The unrighteous man loves evil. And the way he's able to keep that up and keep going is because he ignores the consequences. He isn't afraid of what's going to happen to him. The unrighteous man whistles as he walks down the path of wickedness through life. Here's an illustration I think will help. Imagine you walk into a room and you see a child with a crayon in their hand, and they're just going to town on the wall. And you can see on their face all the joy and, and just how great of an experience they're having. They're intoxicated, you could say, with their evil schemes, right? But then mom walks in, hands on the hip. She's standing in the doorway. And as soon as the child looks over and sees her, like his frown turns, or his smile turns into a frown so fast, like you think his head's going to hit the floor. There's just this instant reality check that comes upon him. He was ignoring it the whole time, just enjoying himself. And then reality struck hard. Well, in the same way, the unrighteous man is coloring on the walls, but he hasn't noticed God in the doorway yet. Enjoyment has totally blinded him to the, to the punishment that is coming. So the righteous... They bow down to God towards his holy temple in the fear of him, it says in verse 7. But the unrighteous aren't afraid. They're like the Egyptians who weren't afraid, and so they didn't slaughter a lamb and cover their doorposts with the blood during the Passover. And it was disaster. If not fearing your parents while coloring on the wall is dangerous, how much more dangerous is it to ignore God? and to love yourself and have no fear of the punishment that's coming towards you. God is a consuming fire and his judgment is coming. You can pretend that God isn't gonna catch you or that he isn't gonna see it and you can sleep easily tonight. You may even sleep easily tomorrow 
for weeks, for years. But that day will come when you will not be sleeping easily. You'll be face to face. God will be in the doorway and you'll receive your judgment. Fear God and be saved. But the unrighteous do not fear God. Subpoint C. The unrighteous are enemies of the righteous. The unrighteous are enemies of the righteous. These two characteristics of the unrighteous man, that he loves himself and he loves evil, and that he has no fear of God, <laughs> converge in a battle between the righteous and the unrighteous. So the righteous just want to enjoy God in peace. But the unrighteous, as they chase after their desires in pursuit of worldly pleasure and rebelling against God's rule, what happens is they end up devouring anyone who gets in their way. Verse nine says, there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. The unrighteous aren't interested in truth or reality. Instead, they will lie to get any kind of advantage out of life they can. They will twist reality, like they'll twist a wet rag to try to get every single drop out of it for themselves that they can get. Loving evil and twisting reality is wrong. It's wicked. I can't think of a more clear example of this than abortion. If you've tracked a pro-abortion argument before, you will see just how desperate people can be to twist reality. The unrighteous man doesn't want to be burdened by natural order or things that God says. Again, he just wants to do things his way. People want to have free love and they want to do it without any commitment and they certainly want to do it without the baggage of a child being born. So what do they do? They twist reality. You have to dehumanize the child. You have to destroy the consequences through murder. And then you can continue whistling and walking down your path. That is wrong. That's wicked. That puts the unrighteous at war with God and the righteous. This pattern of loving evil and twisting reality, what it does, what's so unacceptable, is that it harms others. For one, it, it totally spurns God and what he made them for. It, it, it is a... Uh, a the wrong thing to do to your creator. But more than that, what it does, or, or included in that, is that it hurts others, it harms others. Their ideologies and their practices are wrong. In David's day, what that looked like is people were walking around with a sword and they were trying to kill him. But today, I think the practice of the unrighteous, because it's so civil and it can seem so polite, we can look right past it. We kind of can lump it into these categories of so-called respectable sins. In this way, the unrighteous can flatter you. They can draw you into their ideology. But all the while, what they're doing is, it's like they're covering a, a pit of spears over with leaves to hide the destruction that lies underneath the words that they're saying. The Proverbs warn us about these types of people. He says, Throw in your lot among us, the unrighteous say. We will all have one purse. But my son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Brothers and sisters, beware. The unrighteous will try to evangelize you, to live life the way they live it. What we need to be ready to do is to spot that deceit. One application of this, I think, is just to simply beware of worldly wisdom. Take what you hear from non-Christians with a grain of salt. Weigh it very, very carefully. When you watch Disney or when you watch The Office, you need to have your antennas up. Cartoons are cute. The Office is very funny. But there's nothing cute and there's nothing funny about some of the things that they promote. And it can be really dangerous. And you need to beware. Another example of this, I think, is politics. Whether you listen to Ben Shapiro or any number of late, late night uh, show hosts, late night talk show hosts, uh, you need to do that carefully, right? Especially when they're saying so many things that you agree with about politics, it's really easy to kind of swallow their, their whole worldview 
whole. And that's really, really dangerous. You have to analyze what people are saying because just because they're on your same political team doesn't mean that they're on God's team, right? So you need to be aware of that. The best way to do that, the best way to analyze what we're consuming, whether it be entertainment or politics or whatever that we're getting from the world, is to weigh it against God's word. We want to know what God says is real, not what the unrighteous say are real. So we go to God's word and we weigh what they say. Does God say this is true? Because when it comes down to it, even the people who are polite, even the cute cartoons and funny shows and the politics that you agree with, when it comes down to it, if they're not saved, if they're unrighteous, they're everything we've already described about the unrighteous so far, then on their inside, the psalm says is their inmost self is destruction. It's all the way down to the bottom. That's true even if they have the best intentions, even if they don't mean it. No amount of good intentions changes what makes someone up on the inside. So what all of these reflections about deceitfulness and flattery have in common, again, is that it harms others, thus making the unrighteous man an enemy of God and an enemy of the righteous. Okay, to summarize what we've learned about the unrighteous man, we see that he loves evil, he does not fear God, and he chases his desires with reckless abandon in order to get whatever he can get out of, of reality and twisting it, and he may do so at the harm of others. So number three, point three, God's response. What is God's response to this? Both the righteous and the unrighteous. In short, the answer is, is that God is going to answer the prayers of the righteous man. This is good news for the righteous, and this is really, really, really bad news for the unrighteous. There are three main petitions in the psalm. We're going to look at each three more subpoints. Mm-hmm. Subpoint A, a prayer for righteousness. The first of David's prayers is that God would lead him in righteousness and bring him to God's dwelling place. Verse 8 says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. He's simply praying that God would lead him in his moral requirements, that God would help him to live a righteous life. I'm sure many of you have prayed the same prayer. You've probably prayed it something like this. Lord, I just want to do what is right. Help me to resist my sin and to follow in your path. That's a good prayer. That's a really good prayer. We should pray that prayer very often. Because without holiness, no one will see God. God, what's so wonderful about him, is that he loves to answer that prayer. He wants to lead you in righteousness, and he does. And he does it, he says, with an abundance of steadfast love. We see that in verse 7. That's encouraging that he leads us with an abundance of steadfast love because we need an abundance of steadfast love. We test God so often. We're like children, right? We just do it over and over and over again. Our most common defense, like children, is, oh, I didn't know that I shouldn't stick metal in the wall outlet. Or, oh, I didn't know or didn't hear you when you said, stop pulling my sister's hair. Well, in the same way, God is leading us in righteousness, all the while we're constantly saying, I didn't know and I didn't hear. But what's so great is he leads us into that righteousness with a steadfast love, with patience. He bears with us in our sins. And in doing this, he keeps us from stumbling into unrighteousness. His steadfast love keeps us from sticking things in wall outlets and pulling on people's hair. David's prayer then is again a prayer that he would be kept holy and blameless. It's like the righteous are tiptoeing across a tightrope and it's stretched across two skyscrapers. One misstep, any direction, and they're going to plummet into unrighteousness. But God will lead you into safety. David also says in verse eight that he wants to be led in God's righteousness because of his enemies. Because of his enemies. That phrase, because of my enemies, 
describes men who are waiting by the road. They're like highwaymen. And they're looking for an opportunity to reach out and to strike the righteous on their way to the temple. But God is promising that he will lead them safely, that they won't be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, he is a good shepherd. He will walk you through the valley of the shadow of death. He carries a rod and he carries a staff. And he will use that rod to to defend you against the wolves who want to devour you. And he will use that staff to hook you and keep you on the path. He's going to lead you in righteousness. That's David's prayer that he would do this. What that means is, is he will bear with you in your growing pains and he's going to keep you on the trail. And he knows about the wolves. He knows there's an enemy out there who wants to devour you, to devour you. Be comforted that he has lost None of his sheep. None of his sheep. If you are in Christ and he is your shepherd, he won't lose you either. He will lead you in righteousness. We'll see exactly how in just a moment. Keep fighting your sin. Point B, a prayer for judgment. Verse 10. David prays these words. I wonder if you could pray them. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. There's a day that is coming where God will not have to steer you away from wickedness or protect you from the wicked because he will have destroyed them. He will have cast them out. That's because... While God leads the righteous to his temple, he casts out the wicked. So to understand then why David is praying this prayer like this, we need to look first at verses four through six. Verses four through six are gonna support this prayer in verse 10. Verse five says, if you'll look, it says that God hates the evildoer. I mentioned this in the intro, and i just ask you again, does that sound strange? That God would hate the evildoer. You've probably heard that God hates the sin, not the sinner. That isn't true. He hates both. He hates people who cheer on transgenderism and he hates people who are greedy for selfish gain. God hates people who boast in their abilities and brag that they don't need some fairy in the sky to help them get by in life. He hates people who are thirsty for violence and who enjoy other people's suffering. God does not owe his love to the wicked. They deserve his hatred. And this psalm makes very clear what God is going to do about it. Verse four says, evil may not dwell with him. Verse five, the boastful will not stand before his eyes. Verse six, he will destroy those who speak lies. So the reality of God's hatred for sinners is pretty clear. It's pretty plain. And we see exactly what he's going to do. He's going to, they won't be with him. They won't stand before him. And he's going to destroy them. Now this is key. I want you to see then how David's prayer in verse 10 is just, he's just reciting God's character back to him. He's just giving it back to him. In short, or we can look at it. He's saying, look God, you hate evildoers. Well, they're harassing me as we speak. You say they cannot dwell with you and that you will destroy them, so please do it. So he prays in verse 10, destroy those who speak lies. And so David prays that he would make them bear their guilt and fall by their own counsels. God says evil may not dwell with him and that the boastful shall not stand before his eyes. And so David prays that God would cast the rebellious out. And he will. 2 Thessalonians reads like this. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, 
because our testimony to you was believed. So if it's still shocking that God hates evildoers, I can understand that. I, I, can, I can see the logic of it. But maybe it'll help you to know that you and I pray this type of prayer all the time. When you pray that Jesus would come back, you're praying in part that he would come and judge the wicked. Because that's what he's gonna do. It's part of his promise. His, his, his return includes judgment. In light of all this, then, if you feel a conflict in your mind that I would pray that God would destroy the enemies whom he's going to destroy because it's part of his character, when I pray that, how am I also supposed to be, you know, loving my enemies? Well, just pray that prayer knowing that God's enemies are God's enemies and he's gonna do what he's gonna do. But at the same time, know that you follow and obey what God has told you to do. Namely, love your enemies. When he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Treat him how you would want to be treated. And above all, tell him about the danger of the sin that he is in. That's how we treat our enemies. While you do that, be glad that a day is coming when all unrighteousness, all wickedness will be purified from the earth. Rejoice knowing that you won't be counted among them. Maybe I can frame it this way. I think it's less mysterious that God hates evildoers and more mysterious that these pews are filled with people whom God has loved despite their sin. The truth is, is we all deserve to be destroyed. And it makes sense because we're wicked and God hates wickedness. But he has given us a way to be righteous. And that's our final point. Point C, a prayer for refuge. Verse 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. See, the difference between the unrighteous and the righteous is the grace of God. The problem is, in our effort to be righteous enough for God, is that we can't. We can't. If you're a keen student of the Bible, you may have noticed that Paul actually references this psalm in Romans chapter three, in his famous tirade against Jews and Gentiles and telling them everyone is a sinner, everyone is under the curse of God, no one's gonna be able to stand before him and give a defense. He quotes this psalm. So I take that to mean that as I read this, my throat is an open grave, which is a specific verse that he pulls from. You may remember that again, he says that everyone's throat is an open grave. We all by nature have uh, destruction on the inside. We're like an open grave on the inside. In this psalm, we're the ones waiting by the side of the road, waiting to ambush people on the way to the temple. That's you and me in our nature. But, or then the bad news is, is that God cannot dwell with sinners. So how then are we going to be able to find refuge in God, well, God must remove our sins if we are to be with him. You can't walk the straight path or follow in God's righteous requirements all the way to his temple. You're going to topple over. You're gonna fall into wickedness. But he did what we could not do for ourselves. He sent Jesus in human flesh. He was sinless and he was perfect. Jesus could have walked that path of righteousness perfectly. He could have tiptoed the whole thing all the way to heaven to be with God just to show that he could do it and you and I couldn't do it. But he didn't do that. No, he lived that perfect life not like the lamb who was being led home to be with his father, but he lived that life as a blameless lamb who was gonna be sacrificed like the Passover lamb. God delivered his innocent son into the hands of the unrighteous. They were deceitful and they were cheats. They set up a bum court and they bared false witness against him and they were bloodthirsty and they wanted him dead. And that's what they did. They nailed him to the cross 
and they killed him. And all along, Jesus could have stopped them. He could have prayed the same prayer that David prayed. Father, you hate evildoers. You see what they're doing to me. I'm the righteous. Destroy them. Stop them. Cast them out. I'm not going through this. But he didn't. He had every right to destroy them, and Jesus didn't. Instead, he took on our sin. He suffered the death that he didn't deserve. And he was buried, and he resurrected three days later to become our refuge. Jesus is the refuge for all of the unrighteous who will drop their weapons and bow down to him. If you do that, he will cover you with his righteousness so that when God looks at you, he does not see you and your sin, but he sees the righteousness of Christ. If you will fear God and turn from your abundant transgressions and trust Jesus' sacrifice for your sins, you will be saved. You will find safety. You can pray in confidence, verse 11, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. You take refuge in him. The joy ride that we've been on is gonna seem so silly because you're gonna know the joy it is to have God be with you and for you to be with God. He will cover you with favor. He will grant you protection as you safely tread towards your heavenly home. He will keep you safe and you will be with him. In part, now, we rejoice in him and enjoy him through communion with the Holy Spirit. But a time is coming, brothers and sisters, when he comes back and, uh, and all the evil is purged from his earth and he casts it all out where he's gonna welcome you into his, to his temple. And he is that temple. And he will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. And the only reason he's gonna say that is because Jesus walked the path that you couldn't and he credited it to your account. Rejoice in God. You found refuge in him. You were safe. And now you have joy unspeakable. So in conclusion, the Lord hates the unrighteous and he loves the righteous. He will destroy the unrighteous man and he will dwell with the righteous man in perfect peace and harmony forever. Praise God for Jesus Christ who is your refuge and who has made you righteous and who will lead you home to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the Psalms. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to better understand them and integrate them into our prayer lives even more and more. That we would be more thankful, more grateful that you've led us in righteousness, that you've given us Christ, that we've found refuge there. Lord, help us to rejoice in you more and more this week and more the next week and more the next week. And would you be glorified in our lives? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.